you take your copy of God's Word and let's turn together to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis 35, the text that's listed in your bulletin actually extends to chapter 36 as well. Chapter 36 is a lengthy genealogy of the family of Esau that tells us how Esau becomes Edom, uh, who will be a thorn in the side of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And so our focus this morning will be particularly on chapter 35. And what I hope we'll notice is this theme that really has been working all the way through this first book of the Bible. Over and again, we've seen how our God has shown himself to be good and gracious. He's a good and gracious God from the moment of creation. When he said, let there be light and light shown, God has demonstrated himself to be good and gracious. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What we're going to see is that this good and gracious God who is chasing us with goodness and mercy is actually chasing us all the way home. How is it that God brings us home to himself? Well, this chapter will help us see it. See the very ways and the pathways through which God chases us with his goodness and mercy. But in order to truly see how it is that God brings us home, we need the help of the Holy Spirit, don't we? Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come to you as, as your people this day, claimed by the very blood of Christ through the power of the Spirit. And we pray that you would open our eyes of faith. Holy Spirit, come. Let us see glorious riches. In this portion of your gospel, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 35, beginning in verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. And purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again. When he came from Badan Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place 
where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. As her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Anoi, but his father called his name Ben-Jamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over its, her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Ener. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him at Padanaram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now, the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, you know, I, I've never really had a place that I've called home. Uh, I had six moves before I graduated from high school. And since Sarah and I have been married, we've had five major moves. If you count Memphis, I've had 18 different addresses. And so there's, you know, when people ask me, where are you from? I'm kind of like, well, nowhere, everywhere. Don't really know where home is. And as a result, I've always had this deep desire from home. You know, the, the idea of belonging to a place or being able to go home to a place. I was thinking about that the other day when I picked back up Henry Nowen's book, uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son. Uh, Nowen's book opens with a meditation on Rembrandt's painting of that scene. Uh, and as he reflects upon it, his, his response was, visceral. It was powerful and affecting when he first saw that painting. He had seen it as a poster on a colleague's door, and he wrote about that experience. He said, my heart leapt when I saw it. After my long exposing journey, the tender embrace of father and son expressed everything that I desired at that moment. I was indeed the son exhausted from long travels, I wanted to be embraced. I was looking for home where I could feel safe. The sun come home was all that I was and all that I wanted to be. I desired only to rest safely in a place where I could feel a sense of belonging, a place where I could feel at home. Of course, that longing to be home, to feel safe, to, to belong, it's actually hardwired into us. We are, we're hardwired for a desire for security and significance. And perhaps that's what 
motivates our college homecomings to go back to those places of happy memories, of going back to the home place. Even now, there's something to drive through the hills of, of Virginia, uh, where my people go back to 1750. And though I haven't ever lived there, and my grandmother passed away in 2003, still to drive through that area just brings deep longing, deep association of being home. But how do we get back home? Not just to the home place, but how do we get back home to that sense of deep security and belonging, that, that embrace for which we, we desperately long? How do, we, how do we make our way there? I wonder if that's what crossed Jacob's mind when God speaks to him at the beginning of the chapter and tells him to go to Bethel. I wonder if any of this occurred to him as he as he makes his way from Bethel to Hebron, that place that he had left 30 years before when he had run from his father and his brother, run from the difficulties and the problems, run from all this guilt and shame of his deception, because it has been 30 long years, 30 long years since he left Hebron and ran through Bethel to Padan Aram. And it was a hard 30 years, family dysfunction, conflict with the in-laws, hard-won prosperity, wrestling with God, and then the, the final coup de grace, the, the dark and bitter scenes from Shechem. And now God has said to him at the beginning of verse 1, arise, go up to Bethel. Arise, come back to the place where I met you. Arise, come back to the place where you've made promises to me. Come back to the place of safety and security. Come back to me, God would say. But how does Jacob, how does he come back? How does he come home? For that matter, how do we get home? How do you and I, out of our dark places, out of the far country, how do we make it home? How do we come all the way home? We can only get home when God takes us there. As God calls us and directs us and guides us and sustains us. Because ultimately it's God's grace, his favor, that actually brings us home. That's what you see here in this place in the Bible. You see God guiding Jacob home, calling him home by his grace, even as, he, as he's going up. That's what he says in verse 1. Look at it again in your Bibles or if you're using the bulletin there. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Go to Bethel. Well, God had said back in chapter 28 that he would bring him back to Bethel, to Bethel, the house of God. Had, had Jacob been disobedient, not going to Bethel to Stopping at Shechem, stopping at other points along the way. Some commentators think, in fact, he was being disobedient. They argue that, that Jacob had promised he would come back to Bethel. He would pay his vow. And the fact that he had not yet returned to Bethel was actually a mark of disobedience. Well, that's what some commentators argue. I don't actually think that's the case. Over and again, from the time that, that, that Jacob was in Padan Aram, God had spoken, and Jacob had obeyed. God told him in Padan Aram, leave, go back home, and he left. 
met him at Manhanim with the angels in that place. And he kept moving on, wrestled with him at Peniel, blessed him by calling him Israel, one who struggles with God. And now here he is again, calling him to, to go up, to leave his present place and to, to finally make it back to Bethel, to the place of originally meeting with God. And as Jacob hears the voice of God, he, he responds, and he responds immediately. And, and the result ultimately is, is reformation. Look at what, what Jacob says in verse 2. God calls him to go, and, and so Jacob said to his household, verse 2, and to all that were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Now you read that. And our first question ought to be, well, what were these household gods? What was that all about? And then the second question that follows immediately on that is, is like, what does Jacob have against earrings? Right? I mean, it's a little weird. You know, take away the household gods. We can get that. Give me all your earrings too. We, in our culture, we don't really understand that. What's that all about? Well, we know from the earlier scenes in, in Genesis chapter 31, when, when Rachel stole her father's household gods, that, that while Jacob is committed to Yahweh, not necessarily everyone else in his family is committed to Yahweh. They're still struggling with this polytheistic culture around them. Some of them, maybe many of them, Wives, children were still worshiping other gods instead of, in place of, or alongside of the one true God who's revealed himself to Jacob, Yahweh himself. And so the gods, we can explain that, the earrings were external symbols to show commitment to that God. They were signs and seals of commitments to foreign gods in the same way that baptism is a sign and seal of our commitment as parents and children to belong to the God who's come to us in Jesus Christ. That's what these earrings were. And so when Jacob says, give me your gods and give me your earrings, he's asking them for reformation. Where did they get these gods? Where did they get the earrings? Well, it's likely they, they got them at Shechem. Remember at the end of chapter 34, they have plundered the city they've taken everything including the gods including the earrings including everything it's ironic perhaps that they've begun to worship the gods of the city that couldn't protect the city when they came but there it goes sometimes our our idolatries don't make much sense do they they've been worshiping these false gods that they've secured in this horrible shechem genocide and now jacob says give them to me we shouldn't be too hard on these, these folks, this, these family members of Jacob's. Because as soon as Jacob says it, what did they do? They comply. They, they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had. All the earrings, verse 4 tells you. They, they rejoice in and embrace in the reformation that Jacob is leading. Jacob is, is going back home. Going back home to God. And as he goes back home to God, to, to meet with the God who had met him at Bethel, He's leading his family in reformation, leading them to seek the one true God. And as part of that, they, they were casting off their idols, casting off their, their identification with their, their cultural norms in order to be a family that pursues the one true God. 
But friends, isn't that what all our reformations ultimately look like? I mean, when we pursue reformation personally, ultimately as individuals and as the heads of households, isn't our, doesn't our reformation ultimately mean that we, we look seriously at ourselves? And we see those places where perhaps we've conformed ourselves to the idolatries of the culture around us, the ways we have signed and sealed our commitments to these false gods of the culture in which we live? And doesn't Reformation look like setting aside those commitments in order to pursue the one true God? Whether for ourselves or, or, or collectively with our families? Right? What is idolatry after all? Well, in our day, in the 21st century, some 13, you know, 3,000 plus years after these scenes, we're not worshiping necessarily idols made of wood uh, or stone or even gold and silver uh, carved with human hands to which we're bowing down. Perhaps the best uh, definition of idolatry you might run across is, comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. That catechism tells us that idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in the word. And so if we actually will take some time to look in the mirror of God's word and say, God, show me those places where I might actually be committed to idols that I've set beside of or in place of you. What might God show you? Where are those places of idolatry in your own hearts? I mean, if we're honest, we, we could identify people that we've put alongside of or in place of the one true God. Perhaps for some of you, it's your spouse. Where you treat your spouse as though that spouse is Jesus himself. And in times of difficulty and trouble, rather than taking your heart to Christ, you, you actually run to your spouse so that, so that you demand that they rescue you. They help you through this emotional trial, through this, this time of difficulty. Perhaps it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Perhaps it's a set of friends that you meet with regularly and, and they become your, your refuge, your strong tower, your salvation, your glory, to use the language of the Psalms, rather than the one true God himself who's come to you in Jesus Christ. We can turn people into all sorts of idols, can't we? Perhaps it's places that we go to, the beach, that beach house that we have, or condo that we have, or the mountain house, or the hunting camp, or the vacation time. We go to these places as, the, as salvation itself to rescue us from us, to rescue from these times of trial. And we, we put these places, these, these places of, of home-like security right beside the one true God whom we've come to know in Jesus. Perhaps it's activities, activities that have become a kind of idol for us so that at the end of a very difficult work day, over and over again, we, we cannot go to sleep unless we have that one or, or two or even three drinks so that it's not one night out of seven we're doing that, but seven nights out of seven, week after week after week to where we become captive and dependent upon the alcohol to get us through rather than depending upon the one true God. Or perhaps it's some kind of other value uh, where we, we cherish our particular values, whether it's to home 
or to country or to some other value. And we, we hold that value not, not, in, not in place of, but right alongside of, so that, so that that value becomes that means that saves us. I don't know what it is for you, but I know each one of us has all sorts of idols. And part of what God does when he calls us home calls us to come back to him as he calls us to, to reformation, to personal reformation, to look honestly at our own hearts in the light of God's word and to be willing to let go of those gods, to bury them so that we might go forward to meet with him. And if we would just embrace reformation, the result is, is ultimately renewal. That's what happens for Jacob that's ultimately what happens for his family. As, as Jacob makes his way to Bethel, he experiences a renewal of God's power. I mean, what was Jacob really afraid of? We see this over and again. He was afraid of, uh, with, from Laban that Laban would attack him. That's what Mizpah was all about. That, that pillar of rocks, remember, where they make a military covenant. They're, they're scared of one another. What is he scared of with Esau, that Esau and his 400 fighting men would fall upon him and wouldn't be able to defend himself? What is he afraid of at the end of Shechem in chapter 34, that I shall be destroyed, he says, I am my household. But as God is calling him back home to himself and he experiences this, this reformation both in his, his own life and his family's life, what does he experience? He experiences a renewal of God's power. Uh, you see it in verse 5. It's so striking. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of God. That very thing that Jacob feared, that the peoples would fall upon him and destroy him because he was pursuing reformation, because he was pursuing God, because God had called him by his grace to come on home, come home to him, come back to relationship with him. What does he experience but, but a display of God's power so that the very thing he feared did not occur. And in fact, God protected him. Protected him by his power and the power of his presence. But he not only experiences a renewal of God's power, but also a renewal of God's promises. He comes to Bethel, he builds this altar there. And God appears to him once again. And what does God say? In verse 10, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I, give to I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. If there's any doubt in Jacob's mind after 30 years of walking with God, what God's intentions were towards him, they should have been vanquished now because the promises that God had given to Abraham and to Isaac were once again reiterated, renewed for him. Like his forefather Abraham, he had a new name. Abraham had been Abram. But now he's Abraham. Jacob had been Jacob, but now he's Israel. Like his forefather Abraham. God said, you will be a great nation. Kings shall come from you. Blessing through them to all the families of the earth. 
and it will come from you. And like his forefather Abraham, he would know God, both as Yahweh, the covenant maker, the covenant lover, and as El Shaddai, the God of all power. And the renewal of these promises, friends, the covenant of grace was secure. God would bring Jacob and his family home to all of his promises, to experience all that God had for him. The security, the sense of belonging, the significance that he so desperately longed for and needed, all reaffirmed. God was leading him, telling him to go up, leading him home. Just as God is leading you, calling you to himself, calling you to come back home, to, to go on up. Go on up into the presence of God. And yet God's not only with us as, as we're going up. God's also leading us home even as we're going down. We have a tendency to, to believe and to, to, to know even that God is leading us when things are well, when our kids are well, our family members are healthy, when we have enough money in the bank, when we're able to do what we want to do. When, things, when life is good, we put blessed on the back of our cars. We have those bumper stickers, and we, we know that God is with us. But friends, the God who is with us when we're going up is also the God who's with us when we're going down. When life is hard, and we know tragedy and difficulty, God is still leading us through those broken roads home. He's leading us home. Leading us home even when we know the loss of a wife. That's the tragedy that you have here in this passage. In, in verse 16, Rachel is pregnant, and there's, there's some distance from Ephra. In verse 16, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Noi. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died. This is tragic. This is hard. In the ancient Near Eastern world, childbirth often led either to the loss of the child or to the mother or to both, but but it was no less hard or tragic for its commonality. And so we feel Jacob's pain here, especially because this is his beloved Rachel. Even though their marriage had been rocky, he still loved her the best, as evidenced by, by her placement as they went to meet Esau. Remember where Rachel and Joseph were? They were at the back of the line, the last to be attacked, the most to be protected. And he cherished these two sons. He cherished Joseph, certainly, but he cherished this little one, too. And here you see his confidence in knowing that God is walking with him. Because Rachel wants to name him Ben-Noi, child of my sorrow. And Jacob says, no, that won't do. Even in this tragedy, I must name this boy son of my right hand, son of my strength, son of my power. The God who has carried me all of my days and is carrying me home to Bethel. He's the God who will make this son the son of my right hand. And then tragically, he has to bury his wife and he can't make it back to Machpelah. And so what does he do? He buries his beloved Rachel there outside the city of Bethlehem, the house of bread. Where another son of the right hand will be born. Another son who will be well loved. Not one named Benjamin, but one named Jesus. That, that pillar will stand to Jesus' day. 
And people will know Bethlehem as the place where Rachel died. In the midst of his loss, the loss of his wife, Jacob still had confidence that God was leading him and was carrying him home, all the way home. In the loss of his wife and, and even in the loss of a son. It's so quick we might skip past it. It's just one verse. But it's actually, uh, in the, it's brevity, an indication of how heinous what happened is. Verse 22, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went up and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. It's likely that Reuben is not motivated by sensuality and is sleeping with his father's concubine, but rather he's driven by ambition. Uh, on the one hand, he's likely trying to secure his, his side of the family's place in, in, in Jacob's family. He's worried that perhaps Bilhah might move into Rachel's place as the well-loved wife. And so in order to prevent that, the firstborn son of Leah claims her as his own. There's an element of ambition here. But there's also an element in which I think Reuben's claiming authority over his father. As firstborn, he was saying to his father, I wish you were dead so that what is yours would be mine. Just like the younger son in the parable of the two sons in Luke 15, who asked for his inheritance and in doing so told his father that he wished he was dead. That's what Reuben's doing here. He's claiming authority, but regardless of the motivation, Scripture consistently condemns this sort of act. Later in the writings of Moses in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11, this very act demands the death penalty. And though Jacob doesn't seem to react in the moment, it's clear from what follows. He never trusts Reuben again. You'll see that in his attitude toward Reuben and the events that involve Joseph in the next section. And in chapter 49... When Jacob blesses his sons, it will actually, this act will actually cost Reuben his rights as firstborn. Those will go to Joseph and to Judah, the two clear leaders of the next section. And in many ways, when, when Reuben wished Jacob dead with this act, Reuben actually became dead to his father. That was the loss of a son. How hard that had to have been for Jacob. To have gone down into this sorrow of, of having a son tell him he wishes he was dead. And yet some of you have walked these pathways. You've walked the pathways of going down. Going down through the loss of a spouse. Going down through the loss of a child who tells you, I hate you. I don't ever want to see you again. I don't want to know you. How hard that is. And yet even in that, God is at work. He's leading you. He's, he's bringing you home through those broken roads. As you go down into sorrow and difficulty, he's not abandoned you. God's ultimate goal, goal for you, is to call you to come on home. That's what happens to Jacob. He finally is going to make it to Mamre at the end of this chapter, to Hebron. And, and in doing so, there's ascension closure. When we meet Jacob's story fully in chapter 28, what is he doing? He's running from Hebron through Bethel to Laban and Padanaram. Here we are seven chapters later, and where has he come? He's come back home, and he's come back home in Hebron to his father. And his father is, is dying. 
and there is closure there. Verse 27, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years old, and Isaac breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. I mean, what does Jacob say to his last days with his dad? I mean, do they talk about him running away? Oh, yeah, it was his mom's idea. But he knew he needed to run away. Did he talk about that? The shame, the guilt that drove him away? The deception, the lies that, that cut them apart for over 30 years? Did they talk about that? Was there, was there reconciliation? Did Jacob get to say, Dad, I love you? Did he tell him further that your God, the God I knew growing up as the fear of Isaac, he's become my God. He's now El Elohe Israel. I just worshipped him at Bethel and I called the place El Bethel. Dad, your God's my God. Did he tell him that? We're not sure. But what we do know is that, is that he's come full circle and he's there to bury his father. And he bears, buries him in the home burial place, Machpelah. That's where I, Abraham and Sarah are buried. That's where Isaac and Rebekah are now buried. That's where Jacob will be buried, not beside Rachel, but beside Leah. And as he's there at home with his brother, not knowing fully his brother's story, which will be told in chapter 36 in that genealogy, Jacob's come home and his story's come to the end. At least this part, new, new, new foci, there will be a new focus in the next chapters. Joseph and Judah will come to the forefront, but he's at home in Hebron now. We have to ask again, how did he make it that far? I ask you, how did Jacob make it home? God did it. God brought him all the way home. And friends, it's the same for us. As we experience the sense of dislocation and longing and as, as we experience the desire to belong and to be welcomed and to know God's presence and power and promises, how does that happen? Well, God does that by his grace. And he's not simply the father in the parable of the two sons just standing outside the city, just looking. That's not who Jesus is. No, Jesus is going, going after you. He's going after you now, this morning. He's here. He's pursuing you and he's trying to show you, you. All of your idolatry, all the ways you've gone to the far country, all the, the areas of guilt and shame that you're trying to hide, he already knows and he's coming after you, not to judge you, but out of his great love for you, he's telling you to come back home. Just come back home. We're going to sing it in a minute. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure. Listen. And I hope by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Friends, how do you make it home? Well, God does it. Jesus is here. Whether you're going up or whether you're going down, he's calling to you this morning to come home. Come back home.
Father, we do pray that you would grant us grace this morning to hear the word of God. I know you're calling someone this morning. I know you're here. There is someone here who's gone to the far country and they've been relying upon other things, people, places, events, uh, values. They've been relying on something alongside of or in place of you, the one true God. They've known deep loss and difficulty. You are calling them and pursuing them out of your great love. Lord, please don't let that individual leave this place without coming home to you, calling out to you right now. Lord, please. May they say, Lord, please bring me home to yourself. May I, may I enter once again into real relationship with you and know safety and security in the sense of coming home. Lord, do your work this morning. Do what we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us respond.